Hey there, everyone. I'm Arielle, GM of the Legend of the Five Rings campaign Shadows in the West, and welcome to the next of our 20 questions episodes leading up to the release of our story. The L5R 4th edition book has a list of questions called the Game of 20 Questions to get to know your character better in the back of it. In this series, we'll introduce our players and their characters one at a time. Today, we're going to have Nick with us, who plays the Kitsuki investigator Jiro in Shadows in the West. And we'll start with the player questions first. So we're going to start with who are you, what do you do, and what's some of your interests? Yeah, well, uh, my name's Nick, and I've been gaming for, let's see, how old am I? Um, about 31 years, I guess, now, uh, since I got my first first edition D&D box set and, and played with my handful of friends in, in uh, sixth grade. Do for a living, I do software engineering, software development. Not the most exciting job, if you're not into that. But um, it was, it feels like a natural outgrowth of of a lot of the tabletop I did when I was younger, I, I really viewed dealing with machines and and, uh, and machine languages as much like spellcasting, and and I love I love playing wizards and in second edition, and it it works it works in my mind the same. It's, it's how I viewed it, and it's it's fun being able to to shape a kind of reality that way. And uh, interest wise, I'm I'm into gaming when I have a chance. It's difficult to to integrate into your life something like tabletop, which is a if you do it right with a good group, you, you need to be there for them. You need to dedicate to them. And, and there's a lot of ancillary work and thought that goes into it. You know, you want to, you want to flesh out your character. You want to tell a story and you want to tell stories around that story. And in between, you know, maybe an hour of downtime playing a video game, spending time with the family, working 10, 12 hours a day, sometimes it, it it's hard to be able to dedicate that, but it, it's still, important to me, especially with a group like this, that's just absolutely fantastic. Everything that I've, I've loved about tabletop. So my interest outside of, you know, important adult life things is, is kind of what you're seeing right here. Oh, this is the big one. Oh, it's true. You guys are worth it. <laughs> I'm really glad since I know your life has been really hellish lately. Uh, you guys haven't had it too much better. So I just <laughs> So what is your history with gaming? You mentioned uh, like getting the original red box, white box set way back when. <laughs> yeah, the red box and the blue box, baby. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, I don't even remember where I would have gotten it. I'm, I, I'm trying to rack my brain. I remember I got it one night when we were out before I went to my dad's office with him because it was some late night thing they were doing. And I remember sitting in one of the offices at SNME. It was a very technical sort of profession, but... Uh, and this was in 87, maybe? 87. 1987. No, it was worth that. It was 86, maybe. Maybe 86 or 87. And I was reading through the books, and it was just, you know, if you're familiar with this, you know, the there, there weren't even ideas of classes. Your class, your class was elf, you know, <laughs> and it was, you didn't have cool games. Like, you know, now I can play Skyrim, and it's it's genuinely just mind-blowing to me that how far we've come. But at the time, like, my imagination was, was it, you know. I, I, had, I had read, you know, some fantasy books. I, I really liked... Um, I had just finished reading The Hobbit not long before that. So these ideas of, you know, these heroes and dragons, it was just really, really cool. 
and and I really wanted to do this. So of course I'm going to rope all the friends I can into this. I mean, I had no idea what we were doing, of course, because we were like seven years old. And you know, we just it was it was a type of play for us. You know, you know, five years before it would be running around the yard with you know sticks for guns, and it was still it feels very much like that. And um, to segue into it was at I remember for was it Dragon Con or it was at the Hero Con here. Gary Gygax came and uh, I was there and, and and he was talking about things and he mentioned the opening chapter in the Dungeon Master's Guide for um, for D and D Second Edition and and was riffing on that and you know I was at that time I was a few a couple of years later and I still wasn't old I mean I'm I'm not a teenager yet or anything so these ideas weren't they didn't congeal the same way they would like you know now it wasn't exactly his audience I suppose. But maybe not. It it really did affect me because, of course, the next thing I do is I want to get AD and D Second Edition. I'm going to read through this, you know, and and I read through there, and he explains in there that it's it it's like you are children running around playing games, and it's it, it's you know it's playing pretend with your friends when you're little. But now we have a framework to solve these problems of I shot you, no, you didn't. We, we don't have to argue that 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 friction's gone. We have a framework around that, and the framework is there to facilitate that, and and really no more. The idea is that we're telling our story and we're playing this imaginary game together. We're running around with our friends on the playground, and I guess that's what it means to me. It's it's an extension of that, which I think a lot of people lose, and and really good tabletop brings us back to that. We're we're making that story with each other. We're out in the yard playing and pretending we're slaying these dragons, and and we're great samurai, and and all of this. But as adults, we also get to take a huge amount of life experience and to take these roles that we wanted to be when we were little. You know, we're exploring these roles, but we have a better perspective to explore them when we're older, and it helps us. You know, that that level of play helps us grow even more. And it's even, it said, it's, that's why I love you guys. You're just, it's a fantastic experience and everybody's on board the right way. Exactly. That's what's really kept me going just, you know, through like, we've done a few campaigns together, but like a year long campaign oh, yeah. is like, you know, a feat for any group. And uh, I'm really glad oh, yeah. that we've all stayed together for that long and kept everything going, even through like, you know, hell and Christmas break and... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I it, I've been I was actually counting. I was laying in bed last night, and I'm like, this is probably going to come up. How many campaigns have you, have you done? I can't count you the adventures, but actual campaigns, I know I'm over forty, and I'm only counting campaigns where there's been more than uh, than ten actual sessions of play. I mean, I spent years at Paradise Games. Unfortunately, you, you weren't here when that place was still around, but I mean, it was a, one of our hubs. Of every night, there was probably three groups or more playing, and uh, you know, Saturdays during the day, there'd be tabletop war gaming. And I, I couldn't play with that crowd, but I love painting figurines. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was there two times a week. I mean, I did that until until two thousand five ish or six ish when he, when he closed. Yeah, that's that's a lot of history. I mean, it's through all those campaigns, I've seen every way they fall apart. You know, every problem. The sometimes you'll have a problem player that that you can't get rid of for whatever reason, or or one of the big jokes is somebody gets a girlfriend. Yeah, they're that that group's falling apart not because they have to leave, or it's because it's just this weird dynamic that now happens, and it, it's not necessarily a girlfriend. It was more than half the time a boyfriend. You, they now have to share time in a different way, and their life changes. Even if they're not what you would think an integral player, like in our campaign, if we lost somebody it would be really hard to reintegrate without them. And of course, even in not that sense, you'd have players that would have characters that through sometimes bad luck, usually bad decisions, end up dead. And how do you reincorporate the player into the play? And it, it always gets weird and then it just sort of falls off. Or there's, well, it's Christmas break. Um, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Nobody comes back in a couple of weeks. and never comes back together. Like the continuity is Exactly. Broken. 
or somebody burns out. I mean, I understand sometimes if, if a group is a little hard to wrangle, it's, I, I don't envy you. I used to love running campaigns, but oh my God, the amount of work, especially when you're, I mean, if you're playing a by the book kind of module, it's not so bad, really. Those feel very limiting compared to a world that, that you have a, you have a game master bringing alive for you. And it really takes players to help out in that endeavor. They're going to have to bring their A game. And there's a level of trust that when do we become dice monkeys for like four hours at a time? Or where do we just roll with it in these, the rules and the decisions and the dice are something that we can be responsible with and that we can make characterizations and play that doesn't require arbiting. And since I guess most of us have been together, this is, I said, this is our third or fourth campaign, right? That we're very, everybody's very responsible about that. And it's, it's fantastic. Yeah, this is like our, I think, third one now, possibly fourth if you count like a small little intro um, attempt, but this is like our third full one at this point. So uh, everybody knows each other really well and it just works really well. Yeah, and everybody's characterizations and the explorations of those characters has been very different, which is really nice too. It makes me really happy. Um, we're going to move on to the 20 questions about your character, starting with what clan do they belong to? Um, well, let's see. He's an owl. I like the dragon. I like the Togashi. And there was a sort of in a way it was detached, like it, purposefully so. They, they, they sought to be detached. They, they wanted to see the world in a better way. That was, that was their role. That's who they were. And so originally saw uh, Rio Jiro is, is he's detached from the world. But, uh, you know, this is, this is the world where, where the Togashi took this burden on themselves. But, uh, you know, we live in the Togashi Empire and I had to rethink it. So he's owl, but and so the, the story around it's a bit more. Bit more open. It's a bit more open to interpretation. And in the inverse role, filling what what the dragon should be, the owl fill in. And someone like a Kitsune would still very seriously take the one thing given to them, their their role, which was to integrate and make peace, to to incorporate the non-human races into a social order for the next time. Well, really bad shit went down. The, they're involved too. I saw it in a way that, you know, Togashi would have, this was a less bitter break and he would have been very trusted. He would have known how important this role is. And Ryo's somebody who is, he's very dedicated to his, his, expe- his parents' expectations and his family's expectations are. And this would have been their great expectation. You know, they're not the lion. They're not the great, they're leaders of everyone. And they're not the, you know, they're not the phoenix. They're, they have their own place in the world and they know it. And that place would be making peace and friends with the edge of human society. So that's, that's a very, it's more than just owl. It's, you know, it, this isn't just some clan of people who are trying to survive. They, they have a place in the world and they know it. And so he comes from the forest steeped in that world. And now he's learning that the other side of that world, he was the interface to the outside. The inside looks very different to him. So what family do they belong to? So I said, he's Kitsuki. He's actually Kitsuki. You know, there's, there's lineage there. And he was the second son, the first son who was expected, you know, you, you're the first son, you were, were an important facet of, you know, the family line and you, you're going to go be an investigator. Yeah. His brother said, no, his brother was a very large man, very good with the sword, very, very brash and adventurous. And he really honestly didn't have what it took to be, to be an investigator. And if he did, yeah, he might've been an important man. He might've been respected, but he wouldn't have been good. And I, that's, the reason, whether whether uh, Rio knows it or not, that's why his dad let let him do that. So all that expectation fell on to to Rio. So he's he's very much part of his family. It's he's Kitsuki. He he understands the role and the burden they carry and, and what they need to do, and that he he has to be good. The expectations are on him. He's not just some retainer brought in or or someone from the edges of the family. He he, he has to. He's going to carry this on, and he's his name has to be remembered. So is he a Bushi, Shigenja, Monk, or Courtier? 
He's a courtier. They're they're trained to defend themselves. I think in a if you if we looked at a shogunate era of Japan, he would technically be a bushi. He's he's an armed man. He's he's expected to defend himself, defend others, and he has a role in, in that in that area. But his focus is on interfacing between the court and wherever the court needs him. He, he's going to have to defend himself, which is not something he's good at. He doesn't have the will or the temperament or, I mean, he's got some training. He knows how to defend himself, but he's he's not a great warrior, but his job is to, to know and to see. And he, he does look at himself. And one of the things he sees is he knows he's not a great warrior. He knows where his strengths are. So he's focused more on diffusing that conflict, massaging the interpersonal problems before they'll boil up into a fight. So he's very much a courtier. And how would others describe his appearance, do you think? He's probably not ugly. He's not deformed or anything, but he's a tall, lanky country boy who, you know, he's this skinny kid from the forest. <laughs> he, I didn't originally intend for him to wear glasses, but after after Mal, after she saw him that way, I can't see him anyway, but I can't either. he's probably a little severe, maybe like a librarian, like you're going to see this kid. And he's, that kid's going to grow up to be a librarian. You know, it's he has that kind of look about him. Not, you know, it's it's more the, less the actual physical appearance than the perceived appearance. You know, he, he probably looks a bit severe. He probably looks unfriendly, but it's mostly because that he's quiet and, and he's anxious and he keeps to himself out of that fear, not so much of other people, just he doesn't know how to relate as well as he should. He's barely over 18. He's he's not used to a wider world. His natural instincts to draw in. So he probably seems cold and far away and bookish and, you know, future librarian of America. And he also came from a tree or hole in the ground, so that helps. Yeah, he, he comes from a hole in the ground. He 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 doesn't. He tries to look his best, but he he's not going to look ostentatious. He's not going to look like some you know phoenix just prancing around, looking you know glorious in expensive clothes. It's that would rub him the wrong way. He's from the country. I mean, out there, it's. I mean, you might be important, but well, harvest time, time to you know go help out. So uh, the social order was very different. So these ideas of I wear these nice clothes because I don't work are very alien to him and weird. So he's gonna. He'll probably be looked down on by, by certain elements of, of uh, other clans. He's he's definitely not going to look like, you know, he's a super important person. He's going to look like some poor country boy. Exactly. They kind of, the owl in a, as a whole kind of have a, uh, like a similar sort of deal as the fox. They're kind of like seen as backwoods and strange, and they're often not really concerned about what people think of them, but they also are because they're more concerned about, you know, the forest and the environment they're living in. Yeah, I mean the the people that, that they see in the forest, not all of them are human. In fact, many of them aren't. So when you when you come across a, you know, you like a, a kitsune, they're they're not they're of a different world, and and their outward appearance and their shows of station and, and wealth are, are a different and alien concept to what we would see, and they're more familiar with that. Yeah, you know, as I said, when they when they walk into society, these are going to be what's this weird country boy doing? So, what is Ryojiro's primary motivation? Would you say? Well, his primary motivation to him that he knows right now, it's it's going to be living up to expectations. That's all. That's all he was raised in. That's all he knows. That's what he is. He he is all expectations. It's you know when he left originally, he it's all his father's expectations of him. This is this is what you have to be. So all in his mind, every every action he takes is measured up to how is this going to reflect on that. Deeper down, once once he comes to grips with that. He'll realize his motivations are definitely more complex. Don't want to give any spoilers, but he's when he starts to see the world, and a core part of, of Rio is to see the truth. He wants to see the truth in things. That's going to come more to the forefront, and that's going to put him in conflict with a lot of the world, especially the group he's with, because he sees the truth of them, but 
a good deal of society's stability is predicated on them not understanding the truth. That we have a Ronin who's almost definitely more honorable than anyone they'll ever meet, but their truth is that she can't have that honor, but Ryo's going to see that as complete crap, you know, or, or Shio, somebody who he knows who this person is and he's going to eventually really, you know, as the last session, he's going to get a hugely different perspective on who this person is and, and what they've had to go through. And to see these people treated as, as maybe lesser if the truth is known, he's going to have to reconcile that. He's not a bad kid, so I know what side he's going to come out on and it's, it's going to lead to some conflict, I'm sure. Oh yeah, definitely. So is there a person he trusts the most? Well, when he shows up, he trusted practically nobody. He did have immediate trust for Okoto. He, he caught his character. He saw him as like, th- this is a good guy. And just since being a kid, the, the immediate approval he got from Okoto was definitely reinforcing. You know, as time goes on, he, he really likes Atsu. As somebody who wouldn't have, would be a lesser judge of character would probably see Atsu as maybe simple or, or uncaring, but, but Atsu is horribly compassionate and Ryo trusts that a lot. And he liked Shio because there was, there was something about her that seemed safe because Ryo never knew his mom. He, she feel, fills that kind of role of just this, this stable force of like understanding and, and strength that he didn't really have. And it's a little weird, but he doesn't maybe not recognize it, but he sees that in her. So he's, he would definitely trust them to the end of the world by the point we're at. And he, he trusts Dayu in a sense that he knows she's really reliable. She's very, she's very driven. And this isn't a person that that isn't worthy of trust. He's just, he's kind of concerned about her mental health. So this this girl's a little, she's off. She's very, very coony driven. Yeah, she's she's very driven. He, but he, he understands drive. He understands all this, but there's still some part of part of her that he's just, he's uncomfortable, but not so much untrusting. So, I mean, at this point, we've now said the whole group, it minus Crow, immediately he, he doesn't know how to deal with her because, I mean, when you're in the forest like that, you're going to see many travelers who are Ronin and most of them are perfectly fine. And you meet a lot of people who exist outside of the social order. I mean, you meet, you know, some random, you know, Naga Bushi who's, who's traveling through on, on some tasks and they're not bad. They're different, but they're not bad. And so he, he sees Crow probably more for who she really is and not that, you know, she's disgraced. If it doesn't immediately become apparent why she would be, he, he wouldn't be bothered. As time goes on, he sees her as just this enormous badass. While he, he trusts her, he doesn't, he's kind of in awe that, you know, this, this woman is just, whereas, you know, somebody might see a daimyo or a, or the emperor and just they, they'd have this feeling of deference and just I, I it's not my place to bother them that's how he feels about her is just i i am not badass enough <laughs> i i can't do this like he just gives massive respect to that so it, it probably is in a sense damaging to trust because he wouldn't trust her with personal things or inconsequential things but only out of a matter of deference not so much that he doesn't trust her to be honest and open and good about it he's just She's too important. I won't go bothering the real adults here. <laughs> he, he's trusting in that sense of everybody, but definitely the most uh, Atsu and, and, and Shio. I can see that. So what is his greatest strength and greatest weakness? Well, his strength, his greatest strength is, is definitely even seen on his character sheet. He, it's his awareness. He spent all of his time learning how to be aware, how to perceive, how to see things not just in people, but in, in you know, events, the correlation of events in, in larger patterns. And he spends all of his time obsessing over that. So that is his strength. But that also does lead into his weakness, which I'm sure you're going to ask next. So what is his greatest weakness, would you say? His greatest weakness is, um, I'll sum it up by saying he never has all the pieces. He knows that. And it bothers him because he wants to solve the puzzle. He wants to he wants to be able to have some sort of like 
finality, finish this. You know, I've seen everything. I know what this is. We've categorized it. We've put it on a shelf. It, it stems from him being exceptionally weak of will. And while he can dedicate himself to some things, he can't. He can't stand up. He can't stand up to the expectations. He can't stand up to to conflict. He he can't stand up to anything. Partly because he knows that if he tries, his body would probably break. He's he's not strong. <laughs> But he, he also lacks the sort of will to fight for what he needs. If he sees a piece of the puzzle and he knows that somebody has it, but he can't win a direct fight, he'll probably just stew about it. He right now he won't he won't cause trouble, and it's led to some of his anxiety. It's he's he's in a new world, it's new and uncomfortable. So there's going to be some anxiety, but it's it's been getting to him, and he's got a problem with it. And he doesn't he doesn't like talking and being open. But that's the problem. That's that's where most of his strength comes from. He was taught how to talk to people, how to get the truth out of them. And if he can't talk to them, it, he's in trouble. So what does he think of Bushido? Right now, um, when he starts his journey, he's very, this is super important. This is the social order. This is this is how we prevent from falling into chaos. You know, this this chain of duty and, and expectation and position is super important. And if you don't follow this, things fall apart. And when things fall apart, he's from a place where th- there's not a lot. So, you know, if the social order starts falling apart. The harvest doesn't get in, and we don't have rice all you know for the rest of the year, and people die. So he understands how important it is in that respect, and he's not wrong. He sees that, but he he's going to really start to see that that's while the ideal, it doesn't always work, and it can get turned against them. Right before the the campaign starts, he was he was doing an investigation, and he saw how someone could use their position as as a daimyo to cause a lot of problems and and a lot of kids got killed and some really bad shit went down and it was very difficult for him to have to navigate against that power and even in the end he couldn't sort of deal the final blow to it because he he knew lady tamiko was involved and knew about it but he knew that her social position prevented a good resolution here and this is going to come back to haunt him there's a woman who's very mad that she lost not only her kids that drove the whole maho problem to begin with that she lost her husband and she's still out there this is going to be bad and he knows that and he knows that in this case bushido absolutely failed because it worked perfectly and it's going to eat at him and he's going to see it over and over again he's going to see you know samurai disgraced when they shouldn't have been he's going to see actions taken because of you know the way the social order is that are counter to doing its job and it, it's going to bother him so what is his opinion of his own clan, the All Clan? He's going to be pretty chauvinistic about that. He's not going to understand how anybody else can live some other way. He 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 is absolutely owl. He he grew up in the country, and when he goes into a city, his first thought is, "How do you people live?" He he gets over time really uncomfortable with these situations. He, he sees he sees other clans that they, they seem to exist not for their purpose. They they exist for their own ends and to be shitty and petty to one another. And it makes him love his clan even more. He it it's his it's his absolute center. It's who he is. So yeah, he's he's he loves his clan. He is that is him. <laughs> he is definitely an owl. Is Ryujiro married? And does he have an ideal <laughs> spouse, maybe? Oh God. No, he he's not married. I have thought about a situation where he would be. If the world's problems are solved and everything is awesome again, he would probably take on a marriage that he probably wouldn't be altogether happy with, just satisfied and live out a great life and have a bunch of kids because <laughs> it was expected. But I know he's going to change. So he may be, but where he, where he's almost certainly going to end up is is nowhere where he's going to have that kind of luxury. 
but he's still trying to discover himself. He he didn't have much opportunity for romance growing up. He was in a weird position. He did fool around with his his not sister, and and it was complicated for him. And he doesn't know how to feel about all that. And she was definitely the predator in that situation. And he's still trying to deal with that in a sense. But he's also a nineteen year old boy, so he has feelings, and he he has to work through all that to have something healthy. I have a feeling he probably won't, and will just end up some. <laughs> drunk and crazy old investigator who, who dislikes beautiful boys and girls who you know flirt with him. That, that's certainly in the cards, but I, I hope for better for him. Maybe he'll have a good influence in the- Yeah, party. these are all adults who, who, while probably not well-adjusted, are actually very good people. I hope that has a good influence. <laughs> does he have any prejudices of any kind? He definitely does. Whereas you'd see a, you'd see a prejudice from- a crab on, on non-humans, they're, they're, you understand their distrust and it's, you know, are you from the Shadowlands? You know, they're, they're going to be immediately distrustful of something that's out of the ordinary. It's like, you're actually a giant snake? Not cool with that. But <laughs> the, the sort of normal prejudices you'd see like against, against people of lower station or, or people who, who have little means or people who come from other places or people who might not be human, he doesn't have those, but he is, he is in a sense, many of those himself. So when he sees very important people doing very important things and he sees, no, you're just self-important, but he's going to be very prejudiced against that. And it, it built up quickly with him that every interaction with, with most other clans were, you aren't nice people. And that's probably unfair because he's now coming to realize many of them really are and they deal with the same problems he does. But he's he's very, he doesn't trust other people in clans. He doesn't trust people of, of higher status because his comfort zone is the more marginalized people. So the people you get closer up, say up to the emperor, he's going to have a more distant and probably uncharitable, uncharitable reaction to. Oh yeah. And to whom does Ryajiro owe the most loyalty? Um, sort of three circles, I guess. There was his immediate family, which has been not doing well and falling apart, and eventually he loses all of. And then there's there's his village. You know, it's, it was his life. It's his, it's a stable point. It's when he when he needs to think of how things are done, he thinks back home, and eventually that too is taken from him. So his loyalties get erased, sort of, because his loyalties are to himself and to who he was and to where he's from and and the order that was there. And when that gets washed away, he's he's destabilized. But he needs that. He needs that centeredness. He needs to. He needs to be loyal to an ideal and people. And it's taking him a while. But he's he's starting to find that in the group. And in the last few sessions, there's a few people that he's he really has strong feelings of loyalty towards now. And he understands them better. He understands who they are. And that's a very familiar kind of place for him. So that loyalty is being is being rebuilt there. And what are his favorite and least favorite things? His most favorite thing is is watching the world go by. Followed by reading. He, he likes reading, but but the world it describes, he'd rather go see. He, he's a bit eager to do that. And especially now that he's got a taste of that world, he, he wants to see more. So if he's in the castle, he's he's going to want to watch how these people interact, what they're saying, what does it mean, the, the interplay of, of how society functions and the wheels turn. So that's that's definitely his favorite thing to do. He would lie to you and tell you that Go is one of his favorite things to do, but he's completely terrible at it because he doesn't put any dedication <laughs> into it whatsoever because he doesn't actually care. Saying I watch people sounds creepy. He knows this and it's not one of the things you say. So he has respectable diversions of his time that he's not very good at. Uh, his least favorite thing right now is talking to strangers. He can't do it. He didn't live in a place where strangers were particularly common and it's, it's just really new and weird, but- that's going to change. He's going to eventually love talking to people. He's very, very extroverted. He needs that. He needs talking to other people to solve his own problems. And that won't be his least favorite thing for long. 
By that point, <laughs> it'll probably be Oni or something. Replaces something mildly uncomfortable with literal hellspawn. Yeah. Does your character have any recurring mannerisms? Well, again, bring up glasses. They weren't something I had thought about, but after he had glasses, I, I can imagine him touching them or adjusting them or, or cleaning them when he's nervous or trying to detach himself from a situation. I can imagine him taking off his glasses and cleaning them when he wants to become detached because all of a sudden his eyesight is compromised. He's removed from the world in a sense. And it's a very, the actions will detach you from who you're standing next to. And those glasses come off and you're not looking at them. It makes a whole space and it makes him more comfortable. I can see him doing that a lot when he's uncomfortable. He also gets very quiet when he's anxious. He, he goes into a nervous, I, I need to pay attention mode. It's sort of a fight or flight. It's in a, this null zone between it for him. He, he's, he's like a animal, like a, like a rabbit. Is this a threat? I need to pay complete attention for the moment before I decide next. So he, he'll get very quiet when that happens. And as a more general behavior mannerism, he, he'll err on the side of deference. He likes being more polite than he has to, not because it, he thinks it'll get him something, not because he's being ingratiating or smarmy. He's just, if, he, if he's talking to somebody, he actually likes them and, and he'll, he'll probably overcompensate for that. <laughs> well, at least it has gotten him a few places. Yeah, it has. Not always good, but usually <laughs> good. <laughs> I would also say um, the thing you described with the glasses is an awful lot like uh, if you're like stirring tea or something, like trying to distract yourself or have something to do while there's an uncomfortable conversation going on. I think that's kind of what his glasses cleaning is like and his adjusting. Exactly. that You nailed it on the head right there. So what is his general disposition like? Like, does he have any, does he have like wildly bouncing around emotions or is he more stoic? He wants to be stoic. He's right now he's very lonely. He he doesn't he doesn't have anyone and and he needs it. I mean, he's at an age where where you do need it, but moreover, he's so he's actually very outgoing and and he doesn't have that. So he has to keep it inside. There's nobody to share that with. So as an extrovert, he's he's going to need these other people to come in and and, and help it, help his own mind form thoughts and he doesn't have that. So it it's going to boil up wrong. He is very emotional. He just he can't show it and he has no one to show it with. So there's going to be a danger of where that just boils out and he makes some really poor decisions. He'll, he'll act out. He'll definitely try to use it constructively. He'll get in bad positions. You know, he, he won't, he doesn't have the maturity to know that when we face that Oni, I'm going to get my butt kicked instantly. He doesn't actually do that. You know, that is, that is definitely, he's lucked out, but he, he, his luck does run out a, a few times. So that's part of him dealing with those emotions. And said he's also, he's 19, he has feelings, and he, he has zero skill set for really dealing with that right now. So that that's, that's I think, also another thing that's going to bother him. He's not the sort to just be some sort of weird, creepy, you know, guy in the corner staring at a girl or cute boy if, you know, he works for your Yakuza. <laughs> it, it, it won't be constructive at first. So he, he's he's going to be emotionally driven, and there's certain scene at the sake house he he you know after a couple of drinks he'll 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 start to speak his mind and it won't come out constructively it, it'll it'll come out it'll come out just not in the best way <laughs> yeah so how would he handle a subordinate's improper behavior do you think so yeah this was one of the things that i thought about pretty pretty hard cuz he's not really been in a position of having genuine subordinates so in his village he would have i mean he would have status and and this is important i'm not going to be i'm Definitely not claiming I'm an expert on Japanese culture, especially of, of a period this is, you know, drawing more from in terms of inspiration. But in my time at Japanese school, you know, uh, Dr. Tano, he would literally beat us if we if we screwed up answers on questions. Lovingly <laughs> beat us. Not hard. 
I got a good understanding of of how now a lot of the how expectations in society would run, and we definitely had to learn Japanese history and understand things. And there's a there's this meme I've noticed in Alpha of our fandom and beyond that, and I've seen it elsewhere too. It's it's just and it's perception of Japanese culture that if you had a higher station, you could do something. You had complete control and lordship over somebody below your station that you legally would kind of have that. If you did go around doing complete asshole things like that peasant didn't listen to you, time to chop his, you know, his head off. Um, while you might have had some right to do that, immediately someone is informing, say, your dad or the daimyo of what a giant shitlord you are. It ends pretty quickly in and it's going to be embarrassing for everyone involved. But he comes from a place where that sort of understanding this kind of fabric of social interconnection while they have to show them deference. You know, they, they do. It's not in a, they're not afraid. You know, you, you can talk to him. He's he's still part of the village. And, and when the summer goes bad or there's not enough rain, he he's out working with everyone else. Everybody is in this very much together. There's no giant important guy sitting in a castle with his giant retinue of, of retainers. And, and they get, all, all they do is talk about garbage all day. Everybody kind of has to chip in in many ways. And, you know, even daimyos in the forest there, that communication is so bad and there are just so few people that they're traveling a lot too. And, and they're traveling light, maybe two or three retainers. So their their days are busy and, and dirty and, and, and filled with actual work. So he would treat this very differently than I think a lot of other characters might. He's going to be more interested in why they didn't. He's going to really look at himself of what did I do wrong that they're not on board with this. It's more of a team sort of aspect than a giant social expectation and how dare you not listen. His his first reaction to that sort of behavior is he's going to be more concerned about the other person and why they misbehaved or what they don't know. He takes that on as a very personal level of thing. And that was a way too long answer for a simple question. Sorry. It was a good thing. So I know he never met his mother, but how do you think that your character's parents would describe him? Um, his mother would be super proud of him. He would have been absolutely a mama's boy. And he, I don't know if he knows that. He wouldn't even really have a, a context for that, but she'd be very proud of him. He has lived up to every expectation she would have ever had for him. And I'm, I'm going to bring up Dr. Tano again, because he was a great professor back then. And I'm thinking about him. His dad would describe him. He wouldn't act like he was disappointed. We had a, we had a big conference and, and Dr. Tano was showing us off. And, you know, after his program on language and learning, and it was an accelerated program, and we did better than the graduates at uh, Chapel Hill. And he, it seemed like he was very almost disapproving if you weren't, if you didn't notice. He made us speak for ourselves and made us present and, and discuss, you know, the, the work that Dr. Tondo had done and, and how it worked and everything. And I think there was this perception at first that it was cold, like he was disappointed at us, like we didn't do good enough. But it struck me sooner rather than later. It was it was later that year. It's why I really liked Dr. Tano. Is that that might have been the most loving thing I've ever seen done. Didn't do it because he was disappointed. He didn't want to take any of the credit for what we were doing. Again, I guess the idea behind his dad. His dad doesn't want to take any credit for what Jiro is doing. Deep down, he is he could not be happier. But he doesn't mm-hmm. want to look how great my son is. He wants to take none of that credit for himself. He want he wants Jiro to own that because he knows he deserves it. So he wouldn't. You couldn't make him say exactly how proud he is. But I don't think he could be prouder. And I know his brother is too. If and when his brother ever shows back up, his his brother, who's you know great world traveling badass warrior, will would be just it's like holy crap, my little brother. Not only. Awesome at his job, <laughs> but we'll go toe to toe with an Oni even if it gets his ass kicked. It, it, that's just it's who he wants to be. So, what is his highest ambition? In reality, he wants he wants to find a place in the world. He wants the world to make sense. 
and he he wants to maybe not balance it, but stop it spinning so wildly. You know, um, when we were in the, the special place the past few weeks, he's seeing this <laughs> pattern of of how terrible and cruel leadership has this horrible rippling effect across everything. And he doesn't know how he relates to that because he, he he doesn't like that. And he doesn't think the world will be okay if it continues, but he doesn't know his place there. But in his mind, he's seeing this as how do I find a place in society? You know, what's my role? Who am I? How, how do I fit in with all of this? But in reality, that drive is going to be more world, more world altering. He won't be satisfied until, until that's handled. That makes sense. So how religious is Rio Jiro, if at all? It's going to be probably different than some. He doesn't, he's not religious for any show, which probably isn't very common anyway. He has a closer tie to the fortunes, especially the lesser ones, because a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of lesser fortunes are sort of special places of the forest, personifications of, of things that are literally every part of his life every day. And, you know, a shrine to, to the Kitsune. I mean, well, I, I know some, you know, and, and, and even now it, as we see, the, these places are, are familiar to him in ways that they're, they're important. He has a spiritual connection to them. The the actual rites and, and all of that are more quiet into himself. He doesn't. It's a it's a very personal relationship to religion with him. Not an outward. Not like a Kuni would have a different understanding of a god. And I think that's one of the reasons why he looks at Dayu so strangely is her relationship to this whole spiritual part of the world is very different than his. And it, for him, it's personal. And for her, it's very regimented and, and powerful and, and grandiose. And it, it doesn't make sense to him. You know, for him, it's, you know, well, because the local forest here is full of these and we're on good terms with them. And we do this because we like them and they're good to us. Not, I, I need to kill someone with a lightning bolt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> More outward display of power. Yeah, he's he's religious, but it, it's a very different kind of religion than what he's saying as he walks across Rokugan. And so, if you could, what would you give Jiro for advice? Like, what would you tell him? I'd give him a hug because he really needs a hug, really bad. <laughs> I think they all do. I think they all do at this point. Really, holy crap, they're all pretty broken. But but yeah, Rio just needs a hug, and just he needs to be told that that there are people who care and love about him and, and will be here for him. Because I don't think he understands that. And he, he just wonders when the world will stop fighting him. So I think I'd also tell him the world will never stop fighting you, but he's got a good chance to win. Well, thanks for coming out tonight and doing all of this. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. I, I actually enjoyed it. I get to talk about, you know, tabletop. I don't get to do that. I get looked at weird if I try. I understand that. Yeah, we got some good insight, I think. <laughs> the latest updates in our podcast, be sure to check us out on Twitter at SITWL5R. You can also join our Discord server to talk L5R, tabletop, and everything in between. Shadows in the West is played using the fourth edition of the Legend of the Five Rings role-playing game, developed by Alderac Entertainment Group and owned by Fantasy Flight Games. 